You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Mark. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in front of you in those seats. That's our gift to you. If you do not own a Bible, and I need your help this morning, would somebody grab one of those Bibles and turn to Mark 7, beginning in verse 24, and would you let me know what page that is? So this is kind of like a sword drill, though not like the ones back in my day where it was all on me to find the text. You can actually go to your concordance. But does anybody see 842? Go grab one of those Bibles if you don't have one, 842. That way we can all be on the same page, literally speaking. Now, this is the time of the service where we go to God's Word. And if you're relatively new to Ascend, this might seem like it is just tradition. Speaking of which, we just studied that the last couple of weeks. This might be religion. This might just be the, the point where I stand up and do what I am professionally responsible to do. But I just want to move past that tradition, move past that routine, and speak to you personally for a moment. Can I do that? I'm going to do it, whether you let me or not. You know, when I was saved back in 1987 and God opened my eyes to my sinfulness, he opened my eyes to the truths that I had known factually for so many years to a place where I actually owned it, to where those facts became my life. One of the immediate changes was that this book that we study from moved from a textbook, moved from a a, a reference manual of facts to a standard for life. It it moved from that to to a, a resource that could actually change me. There's no amount of conferences that you can go to that will ultimately change your marriage. There's no amount of classes and degrees that you can take that will give you the answers to life. There's no amount of prescriptions or diagnoses or or ways to cope in your life that can move you from being an angry person to a patient person. Nothing this world has to offer can ultimately do that, but this book can. And, And I moved from hearing that from others to actually owning it in my own heart, and it's why I am passionate about doing this week in and week out, because what I'm trying to do is to be able to explain this book to you in such a way where not only you understand it, but where you get equipped to study it yourself. Because I am convinced, because of what God's Word says, and my own experience, that if you will do this, change will happen. Hope will be realized, and you will become more and more like Christ to put on display him to this dark and broken world. So that's why we do what we do, and I pray that the next few moments that we spend together will continue to achieve this in your life. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, and then hopefully you'll be able to see the the point behind the title of this message. And from there, he, Jesus, arose and went away into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Don't you just love God's word? I mean, the God of the universe, Jesus, did not want people to know he was there, but he couldn't be hidden. Verse 25, but immediately, a woman whose little daughter 
had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her little daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it out to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him... A man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to the heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. I mean, we could just close the book right now, pray and be fed. But there's something here that I want us all to see that is both practical and theological. And it begins by setting the stage by the fact that I want to communicate to you, I am not a dog person. <laughs> I, I grew up seeing dogs in neighborhoods and with friends and family and made a quick assessment, and that is that dogs are smelly, dogs slobber, dogs poop in the house, dogs chew, dogs jump up on you. Why would anybody want a dog? Amen. Now, you know, the fact is, is that our society is rather positive toward dogs, isn't it? There's a positive disposition. In fact, you talk to most masters, not all of them, but most masters, and no matter how much these symptoms are present in their dogs, they say that they love dogs. I mean, after all, our society says that man's best friend is the dog. Now, that wasn't the case in the ancient world. In fact, especially Israel. In fact, you can go back to Exodus chapter 22, verse 31, and, and the dietary restrictions of the Mosaic law said that if you have food that is unfit for human beings, you are to throw it to the dogs. It was a term that was the most dishonorable and most disrespectful term that an ancient person could hurl at you. And so why did Jesus, the, the God of compassion, the, the God of mercy, when confronted with a mother who will get into the human interest of this, she's pleading with him, please cast out the demon out of my, my daughter. He calls her a dog. Well, I think we'll see as we unpack this text that Jesus uses this term to differentiate between true followers of him and religious fakes. And so you and I have an opportunity with the mirror of this text. The Bible is a mirror. It is intended for us to look into it deeply, long term. And we're supposed to assess what we see. 
So this is your opportunity and mine to look into the mirror of Scripture to determine, are you a gospel dog or a religious fake? Four ways we can tell that. Number one, the gospel dogs persist in faith. Gospel dogs persist in faith. There's a quote I would ask the team to put up on the screen so that we can understand the context from the passage we've just come from to the passage we're in right now. And that is that religiously clean can look good on the outside, but ugly on the inside. That's the point of what Jesus has been exposing to the religious leaders that have come down from Jerusalem. These are the religious elite in Israel. And the religious elite looked really good on the outside, but Jesus exposed that their hearts were not clean. Therefore, they were not gospelly clean. And so gospel clean always begins with a clean inside. This is what Jesus has been teaching. This is the point that Mark has been teaching through the words and the details that he uses. It's also what Peter, who we believe has been dictating to Mark, is trying to put on display. So we see in verse 24 that Jesus from there, from the Galilee region, from the region that is expressly and almost exclusively Jewish, he arose and went away. Do you see those verbs? Those verbs are intentional. Jesus is awakening, he's planning, and he's going, and what's important about that intentionality is what follows. Where does he go? He goes to the region of Tyre. Now, Tyre was a city that the ancients said was in the middle of the sea. So this city actually was a rocky island that was just off the coast of the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, why was that important? Because it was very strategically located. It was heavily fortified. It essentially controlled the traffic of ships inbound and outbound in that region. And so Tyre was an extremely powerful, an extremely wealthy city throughout all of ancient history. In fact, you can study the Old Testament and you can see that Solomon and David had alliances with Hiram I, king of Tyre. And he partnered with them to help build the temple. And so there was a partnership. But by this time, Josephus says, who is the the ancient Jewish historian, that the, the, the people of Tyre and the nations in the region of Tyre were actually one of Israel's bitterest enemies. So basically what is happening is a Kansas Jayhawk fan is going to Columbia, Missouri. Except infinitely more volatile than this. Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, as we see, prioritizing the Jews, goes to Gentile territory, and this is unorthodox. Now, now, now coming out of the passage that we've just studied, it's even more unorthodox. The religious elite have come down talking about uh, traditions of elders, clean and unclean, and Jesus goes to a region where everyone is unclean. That is the imagery. But then Mark says that Jesus goes and goes into a house and he wants to be hidden. We don't know why. We can speculate that perhaps because of the last time he was in a Gentile region, everybody was swept up into such a frenzy that the people of the region actually compelled him to leave. So maybe it was that, but I think there was a theological reason, and we'll see that in the text. 
So Jesus goes into this area. He wants to remain hidden, but he can't. And that's what Mark is trying to put forth. That Jesus is so popular that not just in Israel, but even in the Gentile regions, everybody wants a piece of him. But, But I think that Jesus was doing this because he wanted to display that true gospel faith persists. And we see that in verse 25. Immediately, a woman. Now, first of all, in the ancient context, that should have caused alarm bells to go out. Women were the lower rung of society. So for a woman to come seek Jesus out in a house where he is trying to remain hidden, where he is surrounded by his disciples, and it would have been very difficult for for this woman to move past that layer of security, if you will. Beyond that, she's also, look what the text says, a Gentile, or literally in the Greek, the word is Greek. She spoke Greek. She had a Greek culture. This was unclean to the Jews. But then look what the text says. She was a Syrophoenician woman. In fact, would you write down Mark chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15. This is the parallel account. And and Matthew and Mark are essentially trying to show the same thing, but they will use different details to emphasize their specific point. And so Matthew actually says that this woman is a Canaanite which if you study the Old Testament, you understand the significance of that, that Matthew's drawing attention to the Jewish readers to the fact that this is a descendant of the Canaanites. Mark decides to use Syrophoenician here because he's likely writing to Gentiles who had a strong Jewish background, a strong Jewish scripture understanding. So he says Syrophoenician because this goes way back to before Abraham even settled in the promised land. So all of this context is coming to bear on what the details are that Matthew and Mark provide. This woman comes to Jesus and she has a request. Look at this. My little daughter. Now, this term is an important one and it helps kind of understand, make us understand the human interest. Back in Mark chapter 5 and verse 23, Jairus, remember he was the religious leader of the synagogue. Jairus had come to Jesus and said, my sweet baby girl. That's what we said that word actually means. It's like my daughters, the three of them are sitting here in the front. And no matter how old they get, I will always see them and probably refer to them, especially when it embarrasses them, (laughs) as my sweet baby girls. I love them. When I hear their voices in the morning, I'm energized. I'm energized. When I I see the car that my daughter Meg is driving out on the streets, I'm energized. I love my sweet baby girls. And that's what this woman is saying is my my sweet baby girl. We have no idea how old she was. She's probably maybe late elementary, early teenage years. But she says, my sweet baby girl, that communicates to Jesus the endearment that this woman has toward her daughter, the love that this woman has toward her daughter. And look at the condition that the daughter has. Do you see it in the text? And I think Mark is intentional. Look at it. She says that she had an unclean spirit. Remember, we've just talked about clean and unclean. And so you have an unclean region, an unclean woman, and an unclean spirit. What happens whenever we touch something that is dirty or unclean? Our hands become what? Dirty. Dirty. 
The imagery that Mark is putting on display, the imagery that the entire Bible tells us is that those who are unclean spiritually, when we come in contact with the clean Jesus and he comes in contact with us, what happens is not what happens in our life where the clean becomes unclean. What happens is that the clean makes the unclean clean. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so that's what's going on here. And this woman is pleading It says in verse 25, she fell down at his feet. Now, the Matthew 15 account actually gives us more information that in this particular case is valuable. You can write down Matthew 15 in verse 23. It says that this woman pled with Jesus and he did not answer a word. Hmm. Doesn't seem very compassionate, does it? doesn't seem very merciful. And in fact, the Matthew 15 account says that the disciples were begging Jesus to send her away. The disciples are annoyed. The disciples understand that there's repetition that is found in this passage, that the woman keeps pleading, Jesus, please, please help. In fact, she says, son of David, she's trying anything that will get Jesus' attention, anything that will move him to respond, and she's doing it over and over and over again, and Rabbi is just silent. The disciples are annoyed. And the term actually is the imperfect tense, which denotes repetition. And so she's begging. The disciples are begging. I mean, this is one of those situations where as a parent, you're like, enough! It is a chaotic scene. But the woman persists. In fact, the same Greek word that is found here in verse 26 of the woman begging is the same word of the disciples begging. They're both begging Jesus. And Jesus is at the center Beloved, listen to another quote that I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. Gospel faith is anchored in God's character, not circumstances. Beloved, if we could get this, if we could just own this, if you could take this nugget away with you and actually live it, if I could do this and I don't, I don't. But if we could take this truth and have this characterize the culture of our souls. So much of our anxiety, so much of our misguided perception would be fixed. Gospel faith is anchored in God's character, not circumstances, and yet we get thrown off course so easily, don't we? Let me throw one out to you that maybe we can laugh about, but what happens when your internet goes down? I mean, first of all, teenagers, like this is the, you know, the apocalypse. But I mean, you're sitting there and you're saying, well, how can I get to my Insta feed? How can I know what the world is doing? I mean, if you work from home, I mean, if the internet goes down, that's, that's bad news. And what happens even as Christians is that when something like this, that is a rather first world problem occurs, we, we can get disheveled, can't we? But let's move to the more serious. What happens when you're waiting for a meeting where the doctor is going to give you the cancer test results? What happens when the boss says to you on Friday, hey, I need to see you in my office? Usually I need to see you in my office from a boss on a Friday is not good. What happens when your children and your teenagers 
are struggling with their sexual orientation. Beloved, we live in a world where our water bottles get shaken often. And it can be very easy for us to get disheveled. Why? Because we are often anchored in our circumstances. If our circumstances are good, then our perspective is good. If our circumstances are bad, then our perspective is bad. And we so easily get blown by the winds of our circumstances. But gospel faith is anchored in the character of God, not our circumstances. Okay, so those of you who don't know, I'll let the cat out of the bag. We own a dog. You see, how I, you see how I did that? The, the cat in the back? I was told by somebody this last week that I, well, they didn't say this, but I, I took this away, that I'm not a joke-telling pastor. So I'm trying, trying to grow in that. <laughs> we own a dog, and so one of the things that you'll see in the video that we're about to show you up on the screen is that our dog persists. So here's the video. Isn't she adorable? Okay, she's she just been fed, but that's not enough. There's more food. Yes, and I'll even beg for it. There. Okay, then I'll hold it, it up and high. My chops and yeah, almost bite my master's hand off. And over, let her jump for it. It is persistence. And it doesn't matter how big the piece of meat is that we give to that dog, she just wants more. But here's the reality, listen to this. She knows her master has it. And beloved, this is the imagery that I want to paint for you. That is the another quote that we'll ask the team to put up on the screen. Gospel faith aligns our wants with his will. That's it. Ah, I wish we could get this. I wish when the realities of our lives are uncertain and the futures are uncertain and we experience physical or emotional or or mental pain and, and we're thrown off course that we could just remember this. The gospel faith aligns our wants with his word. How many times do you stop in your prayer request to the God of the universe and first ask, what does he want out of this? Oh, beloved, what a reminder this woman is. She persists. When God is silent, she persists. When people are painful, she persists. And we'll see in the text when God's answer, even to a well-thought-out question, even to a valued question and a valuable question and a right question, Jesus pushes back. This woman persists. So, beloved, if you want to revel in your gospel dog status, remember that gospel faith persists. Number two, gospel dogs humble themselves. They humble themselves. You know, when you have the one who himself personifies truth. I mean, listen, for most of us, truth is measured by the authority or the authenticity of the standard that we're drawing from. But Jesus is truth himself. God is true. His word is true. So so if Jesus pushes back on your argument, game over, right? But look at what happens here. Jesus pushes back on her request, verse 27. He said to her, let the children or the offspring, literally that word means offspring, which which draws our attention to the Jews. So again, remember, the Bible was written in an ancient context. And so unless we immerse ourselves or transport ourselves back to that ancient context, we're tempted to put our definitions on these terms. But, but the ancient context is, is that when Jesus says children, he's referring to the offspring of Abraham, to the Jews. 
So he says, let the children or the Jews be fed first, for it is not right to take the children or the Jews' bread and throw it to the dogs. And listen, the the point of this parable, underline this, is the bread. Would you put that down? Would you circle it? Would, Would you draw arrows to it? Because the woman can see that, but the Jews couldn't. The point of the parable is bread, not ethnicity. The Jews, the apostles, and the church throughout the ages has struggled with this, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But Jesus gives a parable that is accurate. It is accurate that the Jews had priority, and we'll get to why that's the case in just a few moments. But Jesus' statement is true, and he uses a term, though. I love this, and it's not present in the English, but Jesus uses a, a term for dog that is not the scavenger and the, 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 the untamed dog that would have been present for the majority of the ancient world. He, he actually uses a term here that would have been a domesticated dog. And so what he does is, is he's wanting to move past the general dishonorable sense, but he's not wanting to leave the dog and animal sense completely. Does that make sense? It does in my mind. I hope it does to you. So even in Jesus' choice of words, he's being compassionate, but he's not leaving the truth. The fact is, is that in the plan of redemptive history up to this point, if all you're looking at is chronology and linear movement, what Jesus is saying here is accurate, but remember, the bread is the point, so there's an embedded point that Jesus is giving. But but what he's saying is accurate, that up to this point, the ethnic Jews have had priority, they've had superiority, and so you as a Gentile woman are at best a household dog. And so she could understand that point just as we could. We don't give the best food, or listen to this, you shouldn't, to your dog. I mean, there's this whole society movement that, you know, we want to place such an emphasis on pets. And I get it. We, we love our pets, but they are animals. Read back to Genesis 1. How are humans supposed to view animals as their rulers, as having dominion over that? And yes, stewarding them, but we should never elevate animals to anywhere close to the value of humans. That's my diatribe. That's not in the notes. We can debate that later if you want. Jesus is making a theological point that from a horizontal parable, the woman could understand. Now, here's the reality, and this is where we see the woman humbling herself. She says in verse 21, but she answered him, oh, no, you didn't. (laughs) Wouldn't that be what we expect as Americans? Not a dog. How dare you? You need to know. I have rights. I have value. But here's where we see gospel humility. She says in verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs, she owns that she's a dog. She owns that she's a dog. She doesn't explain it away. She doesn't try to nuance things. 
She owns that she's a dog. She understands. No, no, no. I'm at best a household pet. I'm at best an animal in this analogy that you've given. But she sees the important piece of Jesus' parable that the Jews didn't get. Look at what she says in verse 28. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's after the bread. That's awesome. She understands the point. The point is not ethnicity. The point is not religion. The point is the bread. There's a difference between accepting what someone calls you and then truly owning their assessment, isn't it? Maybe you heard this saying growing up. I know I did. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Good luck with that. Words hurt, don't they? Maybe you've been hurt by a parent, by a bully, by somebody you care deeply about, maybe somebody in this church. I pray it hasn't been me. If it has, beloved, please reach out. Let's talk about it. Let's let the gospel cover whatever offense has taken place. But it's another thing to experience this pain and to deal with it gospelly. See, in our world, we don't necessarily deal with it gospelly, do we? If you've had pain in the past, typically, what is the therapy that you're supposed to have? Positivity. You surround yourself with only positive people. You remove negative resources and sources in your life. You wear t-shirts that say, uh, t-shirts that say positive vibes only, Right? But the gospel, beloved, humbles ourselves. And let's not other people define who we are or identity, but let's the gospel define it. Beloved, that's the, that's the pill. If you have negative in your life, if you've been pained by others in your life, the pill is not positivity. The pill is gospel-tivity. The pill is looking at yourself the way the gospel does. You remember the Saturday Night Live skit, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people like me. The fact is, is no, I'm depraved, I'm a sinner, but I'm an image bearer who God cared deeply enough to send Jesus Christ, his only son, to die on the cross so that if I believe The victory that he achieved on the cross and the grave is now given to me. It's now placed upon me, and I am transformed from the inside out. And I spend a lifetime going from infancy in the gospel to maturity in the gospel, and I have the privilege to pass that on to others. That is offered to you and offered to me. But we must understand who we are in light of the gospel. Here's another quote to put up on the screen. Gospel humility aligns our identity to the truth of what God says about us, no matter how it hurts. You know, you just just read the Bible in a way that is defended by the rest of the Bible, not just an isolated text or passage. And sometimes it hurts, doesn't it? You ever been convicted by God's word? You ever thought you were going along great spiritually and all of a sudden exposed? Beloved, gospel humility aligns our identity to the truth of what God says about us no matter how it hurts. And when we are thinking this way about ourselves, then we are gospel dogs. 
The woman had gotten there, verse 28, even the dogs, she owns it. She humbled herself and gave evidence that she herself was a gospel dog, which leads us to number three. Gospel dogs eat at the banquet. Oh, man. You ready for this? Buckle y'all seatbelts because here we go. Jesus says in verse 29, for this statement, isn't that fascinating? I mean, it looks like a basic statement. It looks like a, a statement that you're like, well, you know what? Actually, that's a good rebuttal to Jesus in a debate. And actually, Jesus' response is, hey, you beat me. That's essentially what he says. And Jesus says, for this statement, in, in Matthew 15, he says, great is your faith. So what in verse 28 kind of blew Jesus' mind, if you will, metaphorically speaking, and caused him to say, your faith is great, and because of this statement, I'm going to do what you asked. We've got to dig in to this statement. The woman had just said something in verse 28 that she meant, but she did not fully comprehend. In fact, I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. And this is very important, and I'll explain why it is. Biblical prophets meant what they said and said what they meant, but often without full understanding of the meaning of what they were saying. Let me explain this, because this, is, this, is, this will be helpful as, as we look at the New Testament and we see such a confusion between the church and Israel. Do you realize that is the most volatile debate in the book of Acts? I know we go to the book of Acts and we want to see reason and precedent for house church, for sign gifts, and we think that's, that's the point. But all of those things were symptoms to point us to the main point, which is the church-Israel transition. That's why Paul was thrown into jail. That's why Paul was before Felix and Festus. That's why Acts 15, the Jerusalem council convened. That's why the, Jew, the, the, the missionary journeys of Paul were so volatile. Why? Because of a misunderstanding of the church and Israel. So what I'm trying to do by this quote that's up on the screen, good job team, is to be able to help us to have a foundation to understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit. That's what Jesus is highlighting here. And I think Peter can now see it after the fact, because remember, this was written after the events actually took place, but in the moment, they didn't get it. And what I'm trying to show you is that the, the prophets, like Isaiah, he meant what he said. In Isaiah 7, 14, he meant that, behold, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a child, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. He meant that, but he didn't fully comprehend what was being said. We'll get to that, Lord willing, when I preach through Matthew. But I think what people struggle with is they want our understanding to be what Isaiah's understanding was, but there's no way he could have had that. Because the prophets are writing down terms about a future, which is a room that is dimly lit. They cannot see everything. So not until we get to the New Testament, not until we get to Christ, not until we get to the completed canon, do we have the room fully lit. And even then, it's kind of hard to see some of the details. And so my point is, is that Isaiah prophesied, that Jeremiah prophesied, that the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied, and they meant what they said, and they said what they meant, but there's more to it. And Jesus in the New Testament sheds the light on that. 
That's what Jesus is drawing out because of this statement, because of what she said, that even the dogs eat the offspring's crumbs. Okay, Lord, help. Okay, so here we go. Let's understand who the people of God are. Because there are opinions out there that the church has replaced Israel. Have you heard that? Maybe some of you haven't, and so you're like, what? Well, that is a strong opinion out there. There are whole denominations that are moved by this approach to understanding God's people. And then there are others who would say, no, 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 God's people has always been ethnic Israel, but then because of their rejection of Christ, they have been laid aside for generations, and then after the fullness of the Gentiles, Romans 9, Romans 9 through 11 comes in, then all Israel will be saved, and then Israel will once again have a centerpiece in redemptive history. Those are opinions that are out there. But I think what Jesus is doing is saying that in this Gentile woman who's untrained in the Holy Scriptures is saying is actually the truth. And that is, beloved, the people of God has never been about ethnicity. It has always been about faith. Would you write that down? I didn't take time to put that up on the screen, but that is gold. The people of God has always been identified by people who have had faith in him and also write this down, he dwells with them. Go back to the Garden of Eden. I'll plant a seed that you can study out later, but the Garden of Eden was actually an imagery of the temple, or the temple was imagery of the Garden of Eden. When you, when you look at how the Garden of Eden was constructed and the surrounding areas and the instruction that God gave to Adam to be a priest and expand the temple to the corners of the globe so that God could dwell with his people. Remember, in the temple, God's dwelt there. And so what Adam was instructed to do is take God's temple, Eden, and expand it throughout the entire earth so that every human being would be God's people identified by faith in him and him dwelling with his people. Adam failed, didn't he? And so then God focused on an ethnic people, Abraham, and he gave them the instruction. He identified himself as that ethnic people's God. He, he gave them instruction that would dis- make them distinct between the, the, the surrounding nations and his people, and they would live by that and give evidence of their faith, and he would dwell with them in the tabernacle and the temple, and that was God putting on display what the point of Adam in the garden was intended to be. How did Israel do with that? They failed. And so then we get to the New Testament, and the temple is now Jesus himself. In fact, when you get to Revelation 21, isn't that the beauty of the New Jerusalem? There's no temple there. Why? Because Jesus is the temple. The temple's value is only in the fact that God dwells there and that we can be in God's presence. That's the value of the physical temple in Jerusalem. And so when we get to the New Testament, the fact is, write this down, Jesus is Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. I don't think that ethnic Israel is going to once again have a center, central role in redemptive history because the light has now been shown. That's why you have passages such as Romans 9, 6. That's why you have passages such as Galatians 6.16. That's why you have passages such as this text here. 
Also, you can write down Isaiah 43, 5 through 6. And write down Revelation 5, 9. No, that's a lot. Isaiah 43, 5 and 6. Galatians 6, 16. Romans 9, 6. And Revelation 5, 9. Why do I give these to you? Because what we see in each one of these passages is that God's plan was never about an ethnic people. It was always about faith and dwelling. That's why. And so now that Jesus is on the screen, everywhere where Adam failed, everywhere where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Therefore, the shadow that Adam and Israel were pointing to is now substance in Christ. He is Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. The church stands in line with all people of faith through all generations who are now identified as always the people of God. And that was the plan from the beginning. In Revelation 21, we will see representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every ethnicity, every social background, every economic background, every gender background, male and female, that's all the genders that are out there. But they will all be present in the new Jerusalem, and God will dwell with them and them with him and be there as the people of God. Beloved, listen, it's always been about faith and dwelling. Now, Israel played a major role. Sure did. Why? Because on display for millennia, the one true God was on display. On display through millennia, God's instruction and how people are to respond to God's instruction were on display. Through millennia, God's dwelling with his people was symbolically and spiritually on display through the tabernacle and the temple. But once Jesus came, we see all of those things were shadows. And now Jesus is the substance. Jesus is Israel. Everybody tied to Jesus is the true Israel. The new Israel. This is what this woman is saying, and she doesn't fully comprehend it. So what this woman is doing, beloved, listen to this, is she is actually claiming what is rightfully hers. The bread. Beloved, it's always been about the bread. Luke chapter 13 Verse 29 says, there will be a banquet one day, and people will come from east and west. West is promise, east is people outside of the promise, and they will all come from Israel and from Gentiles, and they will eat at the table. Why? Because God's banquet was always about faith and dwelling, not about ethnicity. And one of the things that has moved me beyond the Israel in the future reality is Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Those distinctions melt away at the cross. Those distinctions melt away. So why would we say in the future there's going to be another era when now those distinctions exist again? I I, I can't see that. And I don't think that matches up with the flow of redemptive history. And that's why, beloved, you can write this down, full bloom aspect is so important. That's what my dissertation is about. Full bloom is the entire 66 books of Scripture. When we take that full bloom understanding and use that as the light on which we look at every passage of Scripture, I think we see it the way the Holy Spirit intends. It's not easy. There's still challenging passages. But I think that's what this woman is doing. And she's saying, ha, I don't fully comprehend it, but I get full bloom aspect. I'm applying it to this. It's all about the bread. Give me the bread. And what Jesus does is he realizes 
That's what she's saying, and he gives her her horizontal request. Verse 30, she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. (sighs) That feel like you were drinking from a fire hydrant? Okay. Chew on that, let it settle, but let's move on to the next passage. Number four, gospel dogs can't help proclaiming. And I wrestled with this. Most of the outline books that I looked at stopped at verse 30, but I I just see in verse 31 through 37, I think Mark's point is continuing, and so I'm including it in that. Now, what we see in this is that a deaf man is healed, right? I mean, that's the inspired paragraph heading. (laughs) But I don't think the main point is the deaf man. So let's talk about the deaf man, and then we'll get there to the main point in just a second. Well, he returned from the region of Tyre, and if you follow the map, it's actually an odd odd journey. He, he goes through Sidon, which is way up north, and then to the Sea of Galilee, which then he would have to come way back to the southeast, and then he went to the region of the Decapolis, which is to the east of the Sea of Galilee, and you're like, what? I think what Mark was doing is providing for his original audience theology. It wasn't so much about the mile markers in the text as much as it was that Jesus was intentionally staying focused on Gentiles. And I think Peter, of all people, if you go to Acts chapter 10 with him and Cornelius and the picnic blanket that came down, again, Peter struggled with the church and Gentiles and Jews. He struggled with that and it's spent his entire life getting to a place where he got it. As you look at 1 Peter 2.9, we have become a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, just as Jesus and the Lord described of Moses. But Mark is being dictated by Peter, and Peter is saying, listen, this is what all about the Gentiles being included in the people of God through faith in Christ, and he will dwell with them through the Holy Spirit. He's, he's trying to craft all of that by the mile markers that he provides. And then you see in verse 32 that there's a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Why, why is this information important? Because it likely indicates that the man wasn't born deaf. It likely indicates that there was an illness or an injury that moved this man from being able to hear everything and speak clearly to now being deaf and only being able to speak with what he could feel are just tones. Doctors and the deaf community themselves have said that loss of this sense is one of the most shameful and frustrating loss of senses that you can experience. Because when, when, when you look at somebody, you don't usually have an indication that they're deaf, and so you're speaking to them, and they're not responding, and you get frustrated, and they get frustrated because they can see you, and, and there's a disconnect. And so especially in the ancient world, this would have been the case. And why is that important? Because we see the humanity of Jesus in this text. Look at what it says in verse 33. He took the man aside from the crowd privately. I love that. See, in front of the crowd, there's opportunity for ridicule in the presence of Jesus. All of that fades away. The humanity of Jesus is on display here. I I think the humanity of Jesus was on display with the Canaanite woman. In fact, Kent Hughes says that you can't help but see the rhythm and cadence and sparkle in Jesus' eyes. Jesus calls this woman a dog, kind of like the chosen. There's that side of Jesus that I don't think we often see here in the words and the text. 
But I think the same thing is happening here. I think he sees this man who's been going through ridicule. And remember, deaf people, even today, they focus on your face, don't they? They focus on the action. They are locked in. Most of us, when we're communicating with somebody or looking at other things, like, no, they are locked in to the person who is addressing them. And Jesus summons him. Come away from the crowd. And, and he goes up to the man and he sticks his fingers in his ears. There's touch. He spits <clears throat> on his fingers and puts his hands on his tongue. There's a lot of opinions on why the spitting Some believed that in the ancient world that saliva had medicinal value. Others thought that there was some sort of magical uh, cantation that was involved with spitting, but we don't know why Jesus did it. We do know that he touched, and that was important to Jesus and to human beings. He looks up to heaven. The man is locked into Jesus. Remember that. He sees Jesus look up. Why is that important? Because he understands that there is a vertical reality going on. Jesus is not just focused at the man. He's not focused on anything else around him. He is looking up. He is praying. And there's a deep sigh, which that sigh is the same context as Romans 8, 26, that when we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit intercedes with sighs like this. There's a compassion that is communicated in Jesus. And the man is picking up on all of this. Verse 34, he said to him, Ephatha, which is Aramaic, and that's why Mark explains what that term means to these Gentiles that he's writing to. It means be opened. Now, why does he do this? Well, I think he does this the same reason he does back in John chapter 5 when Jesus said something in Aramaic to Jairus' daughter, and that is because I think the early church when Peter was dictating this through Mark, understood this phrase because of how significant it was of what happened. So I think the early church would use these Aramaic terms and they would know what they were talking about. And so this was a term known in the church, but Peter and Mark want the people to understand what it means, and that is be opened. What is opened is hearing. Immediately, verse 35, his ears were opened His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And I I like to imagine, what did he say? I I doubt it was, hmm, now that there's interesting. I think I can hear. No, I think he was saying, I hear you. I'm speaking clearly. Oh, this is awesome. Now, that's an amazing story, isn't it? I want you to see the point that I think is embedded in this. Look at verse 36. Jesus had taken the man privately away from the crowd, but verse 36 says he charged who? What does it say in the text? Them. Is that interesting to you? You see how the Bible, if we're just looking at the words and we're following the flow of the text, can be interesting and that a nugget can appear in an unexpected place? Well, Jesus seems to be private with this man. Maybe his disciples are around. But, but, but he says the instruction is not to the man, but to them, to his friends. Go back to verse 32. They, there's that plural pronoun again brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him. There's a repetition going on here. There's a a desperation going on. They want Jesus to lay his hands on them. 
Now, now, now at this point, all that they knew is that they saw their friend, they saw that he couldn't speak, and they had heard about Jesus, and that was enough for them to put two and two together and to see, we need to get this man to Jesus. Why? Because they loved him. They valued him. But after they saw Jesus for who he was, and they saw the majesty for who the Christ of Scripture was, they could not obey Jesus. They preached all the more. I have to tell you, when I read this, I thought, that is pretty ungrateful. That is pretty negative, isn't it? In fact, it says, verse 36, the more Jesus charged them to tell no one, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And and, and I think you could look at this and say, man, these people were only interested in themselves. But the key is, would you underline this? Oh, I love this. The word proclaimed. The word proclaimed is keruso. Why is that important? Because that term in Mark is always positive and it's always proclaiming the gospel of who Jesus is. Isn't that awesome? These people were not simply talking about a miracle. They were proclaiming the majesty of Christ and the gospel. In fact, you can see that in what Mark includes in verse 37. They were astonished beyond measure. Nothing in their life had ever come close to amazing them like this. And so what do they do? They say he's done all things well. I think there's echoes of creation in this. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1, when Jesus and the Lord and the Father and the Spirit got done with their creation, and they looked at it, and they said, it's all good. That's what the people are saying here. Everything Jesus does is good. What he says is good. How he acts is good. His miracles is good. He is good. We talked about that last week. But then look at what it says. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And listen, I believe that they meant what they said and they said what they meant, but they didn't fully understand it. Would you write down Isaiah 35, 5 through 6? This talks about a day in the future when God would open the eyes of the blind and open the ears of the deaf. Again, Isaiah meant what he said, and he said what he meant, and so the Jews would have looked at that and said, well, maybe that means the day has come. Maybe it has come, and it it has, but it hasn't, right? The day has been inaugurated. It's already here, but, but not yet fully consummated. That's the beauty of this. And so these people are speaking truth about Messiah that even the religious leaders can't get. And listen, beloved, here's the last quote. When we come face to face with the majesty of Christ, gospel dogs can't help proclaiming his majesty to others and inviting them to come. Have you experienced the majesty of Christ? Has he taken your spiritual deaf ears and opened them? If he has, he's opened them so that you can speak clearly. Has he taken the blinders off your spiritual eyes and opened them to your sin, to the glorious majesty of God, and you have realized, no, the only response is humility. The only response is begging God, please forgive me. The only response is it is a privilege to be your slave. I surrender my life to you. Have you done that? Beloved, if you haven't, I'm pleading with you, do that today. 